everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, and Christina is here with me again this week. Hey, Christina. Hi there, Tina, and fellow listeners. (laughs) (laughs) So this week, we have a little bit of a a special episode because it's sort of a a big story. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time. In fact, we're not going to do an in the news story, but I do want to give Mark's website a plug because he I have to do that for him. It's literally his (laughs) only payment. So I'm just going to remind you guys to please go to goodnursebadnurse.com and look at Mark's lovely work and just let us know. Give us some feedback and let us know what you think of it. So, Christina, I know that you have to be familiar with this story. This is the story of Dr. Death from Texas. Oh, goodness. And I tell you, we're just giving Texas a bad rap. Guys. I was born and raised, and I promise that we're almost all normal. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just, I've been wanting to do this story for a long time. I I started researching this story before Wondery came out with their podcast, Dr. Death, last fall. And when they did, I was like, well, I'm just going to put that on the back burner. I don't want to come out with, you know, a little episode about it when they've got this big, highly produced episode or not episode of the entire podcast is is about it. So I kind of thought, you know, I'll do it eventually, but it will, I'll kind of give this a chance to die down, get it, give everyone a chance that wants to listen to it, give them a chance to listen to it. And then I'll do an episode that's more condensed, you know, more like our version and with our with our commentary. So <laughs> right. <laughs> so this story really is disturbing. Yes. It's very disturbing. And of course, the story, the bad nurse, bad doctor, bad, you know, all the bad stories that we do, they're usually pretty disturbing. This story, though, is it not just crazy? Well, it is. It's really crazy. And I think the problem I I mean, well, of course, the story, like you said, is very disturbing. But I think the thing that was so shocking to me about this story is that no one spoke up and said anything. Yeah, that's what's really scary. So to get, I guess, right, right into it. This is the story of Dr. Christopher Dunch. He is a former neurosurgeon. He was born in on April 3rd, 1971. His father was a missionary and physical therapist, and his mother was a school teacher. So growing up, he was very athletic. He played football. He was on the wrestling team. And his classmates and, and his teammates, basically, when it came to the, the, uh, the sports that he played, said that he wasn't very good. Right. <laughs> However, he was relentless when it came to practicing. I mean, they said he would, for example, when he played football and he would be at practice doing drills, if he couldn't do it correctly, he would keep doing it over and over again. He would want the coach to come over and watch him do it over and over and over. And every time he still would get it wrong and he would then leave, go home and apparently just continue practicing and then come back the next time and want them to watch that same drill again. And he still wouldn't get it right. So it's like he didn't know that he did didn't really have a talent for doing that. He really didn't. He wasn't aware of that. Wow. You know how some people can just are just not self-aware. Right. I mean, maybe I'm like that. I guess I wouldn't know. <laughs> no. <laughs> Tina, I, I can promise that that is not the case. <laughs> but that that is unfortunate, especially that seems to be a, that seems to be a very unfortunate characteristic for a physician to have. And that exactly. And that whole character trait that he has that relentless drive to continue to try to do something that he really is not very good at is going to be some foreshadowing for things later to come right in the story 
Well, and he also um, had a, well, he grew up in, in Memphis, Tennessee, and he had a very close friend named Jerry Summers. They both yes. graduated from high school together. And then I, I guess they went their separate ways, kind of, you know, grew up and, and moved on with their life. And, and Christopher Dunch went on to medical school in, to go to medical school in Memphis, Tennessee at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. And there he also completed a spine fellowship program, which from what I know about medical school, a fellowship is is beyond just your residency. So you have medical school, you have residency, and then you might complete a more specialized training called a fellowship. Yes. So if I hear of a physician who is completing a fellowship, in my mind, that puts them an even more qualified level to perform in their specialty. Yes, and the University of Tennessee Health Science, that medical school is a top tier medical school. And that spine fellowship program is a top tier fellowship program. So this is not some second rate medical (laughs) school that's easy to get into. He clearly was very intelligent and at least at the very least capable of, I guess, doing the the academic part of it and kind of getting getting somehow faking his way through. I don't know. Right. And maybe he had the book smarts, just not the street smarts, as we say, (laughs) meaning he might have he might have even well like you said he might have, he might have even thought he understood the procedure when you read something you can you can think you understand it for example setting up a microphone i read the directions yeah. and i thought i knew what i was doing come to try to do it i cannot so. exactly but with a fellowship program you would well it would be very safe to say that you would actually have a lot of hands-on practice and guided i hesitate to say practice i guess guided training really mm-hmm. on on how to perform very specific and in this case, spine surgeries are some of the most specific and delicate surgeries. Well, they do call it practicing medicine. And it's kind of a, a, an odd way to phrase it, but that, that is what they call it. Right. It's practicing medicine. Yeah. So he, after he got finished with his fellowship program, he got an offer from a, the minimal, a minimally invasive spine institute in North Dallas, Texas. Oh, gosh. Sorry, I'm only saying that because I have, when I lived in Texas, I would hear commercials for them all the time. Oh, are you serious? <laughs> yes. I am serious. Oh, TV and scary. radio. Yeah. That's kind of scary. So that was in 2011. You were probably there, right? I was. <laughs> I was there. Wow. Oh. <gasps> Ooh, scary. And so he... I know, it really is. So he was given surgical rights at Baylor Regional Medical Center at Plano. I always think that's a funny name because it's like, just Plano, Texas. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing fancy, just Plano, Texas. (laughs) Oh my goodness. And you know, that is funny because I actually did my, I did a round of clinicals at Baylor, um, that Baylor not at, at Plano, no, no. I there's a, actually Baylor Medical Centers are spread out throughout the North Texas region. So there's several there's several Baylor hospitals almost per every major city in that area. So I, I did my critical hmm. care clinicals at Baylor Dallas, which is a level one trauma center and a nationally recognized hospital. But okay, I have been to Baylor Regional Medical Center at Plano, <laughs> <laughs> not in my professional care capacity, but actually to visit a family member. So now I'm really scared. Oh, no. <laughs> boy. Well, it is kind of scary. It makes you wonder, you know, the right. kind of things that go on at all hospitals, you know, at any hospital, but barely got started um, with this job with this minimally invasive institute. And he kind of did not get started out on the right foot. And he, he was very irresponsible. And they were not happy with him. He he even performed surgery on a patient. And then the next day just could 
just took off and or immediately took off and went to Las Vegas oh. and didn't leave anybody in charge of like looking after the patient. And he wasn't there to do the rounds on the patient to check on him. And they were definitely not happy about that. I think there were some other kind of, I don't know, sort of things that they weren't happy with him about. And so they let him go very soon after he really just got started. Mm. But the thing is, he still had privileges at Baylor Medical Center. So he did continue to perform surgeries at, at the Baylor. hospital. But not as a part. Yeah. As a part of the minimally invasive spine institute. Right. Exactly. So what we'll do is we'll kind of go. There was a lot that went on here. (laughs) Yes. With this this man. So there is one of the the people that he actually did surgery on. His name is Lee Passmore. He worked for the Collin County Medical Examiner's Office, and that's the county, as you I'm sure know, that this hospital is in. And so while he's working there, he's a patient of Dr. Dunch. He not only is he a patient of Dr. Dunch, but he had had some problems after his surgery, some very debilitating problems. And while he's working in the medical examiner's office, he sees this fax come across and he sees Dr. Dunch's name. And he's thinking, what is going on here? Because the fax was about a patient who had died that was a patient of Dr. Dunch's. And they wanted to know, they wanted to determine the cause of death. Right. So that's very interesting to him. You know, that's his doctor, that's his surgeon who had performed surgery on him just a few months before. And he he's thinking, you know, basically sat there and read the, you know, through the facts and is probably just thinking to himself, wow, here I am with this, this situation. He's got like a tremor on his right hand. He, his chest kind of like quivers uncontrollably and he can't feel his feet. But I wonder, I'm just wondering if he's like reading this facts and thinking to himself, wow, I, I kind of got out lucky on this right. one, you know, because this woman, is, she died. Right. And and they said that um, Mr. Passmore, Lee Passmore, he was unable to do, he was, he didn't, he wasn't working in the office before his surgery, but due to the surgery and the debilitating problems that he had after the surgery, he was forced to take this job as part of the medical examiner yes. working in the office. Yeah. And that's sad to me. That's kind of like, you know, people that want to work out in the field or want to work as a more active job right. and they train for that, which I'm sure he did. It's it's really sad. It would be like us, you know, as bedside nurses, someone, you know, something happening to us and we have to go work in an office and that's just not right. what we want to do. You know, not that there's anything wrong with working in an office, but it's not my passion. And so I can... I can sort of empathize, you know, with him because he can't climb ladders. He can't do the thing because he can't feel his feet. It would be, you know, dangerous. It is. It is really sad. And uh, what's even more, what's even more concerning to him is he's reading this report, right? And they're describing what happened to this woman. And he has to be thinking, well, what happened to me? You know, (laughs) I don't, I mean, I wonder, Yeah. I guess, I mean, I I don't know. I, I wouldn't necessarily go back and read my own medical records unless I thought something was wrong. That would probably be really disturbing to him if he knew because there is a doctor by the name of Mark Hoyle who was a a general surgeon who actually worked with Dunch on this, on Lee Passmore's surgery that day. And he said that his account of what happened during that surgery was that during the surgery, the surgical site started to bleed so much that there wasn't really any way that Dunch could have seen what he was doing. He was kind of like flying blind because there was, was like a pool of blood. That's horrifying. And so basically the surgery was, he was supposed to be removing a herniated disc that was pressing on a nerve that was causing Lee Passmore pain. And 
that's what he was supposed to be doing. Right. Which is not, I, I hesitate to say the word routine, but that is a fairly common surgery. Yeah. it's It's been around for decades. It's right. something that, yes, there are risks with any surgery. Right. I mean, there's risks with going and having dental surgery for that matter. It's, <laughs> right. Anytime, you know, you're going under anesthesia, there's always risks, but this is supposed to be a very low risk procedure and it should be done by someone who has done many of these procedures. Right. So many that it's just like, oh, I can do this just like brushing my teeth. Right. So he d- he tells, he announces to Dr. Hoyle while he's kind of, you know, there's this big pool of blood right over the site to where you really can't see what's going on. He says he's going to remove the ligament that separates the disc from the spinal canal, but there's no way he could see to even be able to do that, even if that's what he should do. And Dr. Hoyle is just mortified and Because this ligament is one of the spine's two major stabilizers, and it's less than a millimeter from the spinal canal. And he's just, he literally (laughs) got in front of Dr. Dunch and put his hands over the surgical site to stop him. And he told him, he said, you are reckless. And he he said, I'm never going to work with you again. And he, after that, he, he canceled all of the surgeries that he, that he had scheduled to be, you know, working with him. And he cleaned up during the surgery, he cleaned up the surgical site so that Dunch could see what he was doing. And then I guess he must have insisted that he not do the, the removal of the ligament because he, right. he placed the surgical, a surgical cage around the disc space. And that was to relieve the pressure around the nerves. And then when they did the x-ray, they could see that the cage wasn't really positioned correctly. And so they needed, he needed to move it. Well, when he went to try to adjust it, to put it in the right place, there was a a screw stripped. So he wasn't even able to do that. Oh, my goodness. I mean, talk about a botched surgery. And this right. this is one of the, you know, like I said, it should have been a relatively to what they do. Obviously, to us, it would not be an easy, right. you know, of course, but to for, for what they do, it should not, it should have been routine for them. So you have what happened to Lee Passmore to cause, you know, that that's what happened to him to cause all of his injuries, you know, not being able to feel his feet and the tremors. And that's, Goodness. that's horrible. It's, it's bad enough. But then you think about the woman who, you know, was in the was on that fax sheet. Right. So what do you know? What Tell us what you know about Kelly Martin. And that's who was on that fax sheet, Christina. Yes. Well, Kelly Martin's story is even, I mean, of course, worse than Mr. Lee Passmore's. She was a 54-year-old school teacher, so fairly young. And she had fallen at home while she was getting a box down from the attic. Um, And again, that could happen to the best of us. She was having severe back pain. And so she, you know, went to the doctor and unfortunately for her, that doctor was Dr. Dunch. And he assured her that he could alleviate her pain. And then he even went so far as to tell her that he had never had a bad outcome from a surgery before. Knock on wood. Oh, goodness. (laughs) And we, and this happened. This surgery was in March. Okay. Right. And we know Lee Passmore had a surgery in December. So we know that wasn't true. Right. And so uh, anyways, yeah. Um, so he told her that she needed surgery. And again, she, you know, agreed to the surgery and Dr. Dench began performing the surgery. Well, throughout the surgery, the anesthesiologist was expressing concerns that her blood pressure wasn't high enough and they couldn't get it up. Um, so her blood pressure was low. It was too low. And the nurse even documented that the patient had become pale and her breathing was labored. All signs of major bleeding. <laughs> So, Christina, um, being the lowly nurses that we are, 
What do you think yeah. would be our first thought if we were standing there? We're not OR nurses. We're not surgical nurses. No. But what would be the first thing that would pop into our head if there's a patient that is being operated on right there and their blood pressure was so low and they couldn't get it up? I mean, I don't know. Just guess. Well, you know what? I would think that a major artery would have been cut. Yeah. Anytime someone goes into surgery, one of the major risks is bleeding. Yeah. And any any good surgeon will take that into high consideration. Yes. I mean, they will they they will be monitoring their patient, and they will rely on their team to tell them about you know changes. I mean, when you're doing surgery, you're kind of laser focused onto that one area or what you're doing. Obviously, that's why you have a team. Exactly. <laughs> Anyways, one of my good friends is an OR nurse, <laughs> so so she's explained to me just a little bit about basic surgeries and things. But anyways, I wouldn't know otherwise. But but again, that is. You know, what do we look for after surgery? Signs and symptoms of bleeding. So here she was in surgery and she had some of the biggest ones. Yeah. Low blood pressure and then pale, like becoming pale and um, diaphoretic and labored breathing. I mean, anyways. So um, what happened was Dr. Dunch had sliced through a major blood vessel that runs parallel, parallel along the spine. So she was bleeding internally, but he did nothing to stop it. He did nothing to stop the bleeding. He did nothing to, I mean, he didn't stop the surgery. He didn't call for help. He did nothing to help her. There's nothing recorded. There, there's no record of, of anything that he did. It's just horrifying. And and we know, I, I mean, I can think right off the top of my head, what could have been done for her is if he right. had just looked and found the bleeding vessel, it could have been cauterized. It could have been stopped. Right. It's so crazy. It, it is crazy because they actually wheeled this poor woman into the recovery room and she was still bleeding, bleeding internally, and she declined rapidly. They attempted CPR, but it was too late, and she died. Yeah. And it was a, well, again, maybe not a completely preventable tragedy, but highly likely that it could have been prevented. Absolutely. So many things could have been done, like you said, cauterizing the vessel, giving her blood. <laughs> yes. Anyways, if he was concerned about something, he should have called for a second opinion. If he felt like he couldn't do the cauterization or, or, or you know, again, I'm not familiar with fine surgery. So maybe you can't do that. But there is more to be done than just continuing the surgery. Well, he could have at least tried. That's that's my right. thing. And he instead, he just let her die. And the the whole surgical team is begging him to do something. The anesthesiologist, it said, kept on and on about the blood pressure. The nurses had you know documented about the other side symptoms. And then he goes out and tells her family that she died due to a medical miscalculation. Right. Which doesn't even make sense. No, there's no medical miscalculation. No, this is um, in March. Kelly Martin's surgery was in March and she died, basically died on the table right after surgery. Lee Passmore's surgery was in December. Um, so a couple of months in between. But in in those two or in between those um, two surgeries, you could kind of say things went from bad to worse. Yeah. Because he kept operating on people. And here is the crazy thing to me. I mean, we have this knowledge of him growing up in high school, kind of having, like you said, a relentless drive to perfect something that he never could actually achieve. Yeah. And it's it's like the same thing happened with these surgeries. I mean, if I can't perform a skill as a nurse and I feel like I feel that maybe I just I'm not comfortable with it. 
I will I will ask someone. I'll I'll watch them do it. I will have them watch me do it. I'll talk them through the steps. I mean, there's just so many little basic ways that you can get better at doing what you do. But it doesn't seem like Dr. Dunch even asked for help. I mean, he just he just kept on performing these surgeries. I mean, nothing. It just didn't seem to phase him. I well, guess, what was, and that's what's so shocking. Well, what's so striking to me about this situation is that it seems to me like that very first operation that he did that was botched. Okay, if you if you take Lee Passmore's surgery, right. to me, and I'm sure to him, that is a devastating outcome. But right. I mean, he's, he can still walk. And so maybe in his mind, he can somehow justify that. But then he hasn't he does another surgery in January, the very next month for Barry Morguloff does another it's a spinal fusion. And for Barry, he left bone fragments in the nerves around his spine and he installed the hardware wrong, which it sounds like he installed the hardware wrong in, in uh, Passmore's as well. Right. And so he then in February, the next month after that, he performed surgery on his childhood friend, Jerry Summers. And Summers, you know, he they grew up together, graduated from high school together, and then Dunch started going to college, went to medical school went to his fellowship, graduated. And then I don't know if they stayed friends all this time or they reunited or what happened, but Jerry actually moved to Texas with him. And he was kind of helping him set up his office, I guess. He was, I guess he was kind of working for him. There's right, there's not yeah. a whole lot that's said about that. But he, he had been, Jerry Summers had been in a wreck and was have, dealing with some neck pain. And he uh, you know, was telling, telling Dunch about it. And he offered to do surgery on him. And he actually convinced Jerry to let him fix him. And so in February this year, he's had the surgery in December for Passmore, botched that surgery. He had a surgery in January, Morguloff, spinal fusion, botched that surgery, left front bone fragments, didn't install the hardware correctly. And then in February, he performs surgery on his childhood friend. And when Jerry Summers woke up from that surgery, he couldn't move anything from the neck down. He was a complete quadriplegic. And to this day, he's wheelchair bound and has to use a special wheelchair that he has to control with his head because he can't move any of his extremities. Oh my goodness. Absolutely catastrophic and unbelievable. It, it really is. It really is. And actually one of the surgeons that was working with Dr. Dunge at the time, Dr. Randall Kirby, he assisted him with um, Barry Morgoloff's spinal fusion. And, and per his report, he said that surgery should have been a relatively easy procedure. And and he said that there were like rumors that had kind of been flying around about Dr. Dunge. And he wasn't really sure whether to believe them or not about, you know, that he wasn't a very good doctor and that his all of his surgeries were botched and but he said after working with him he realized that they were true and and so dr kirby is kind of now keeping an eye on dr dunch and thinking to himself well he botched morloff surgery and then he botched summer surgery which is his even his good friend surgery so Dr. Kirby is thinking, well, surely he's not going to be allowed to continue to practice. I mean, he has caused harm to these patients over in in surgeries that should have been con- or that are considered routine. And that is the other part of this case that just boggles my mind is that the hospital did not fire for any of this, and they mm-hmm. did not report him to the medical board or any type of authority. Well, and it was after he he botched the surgery for Passmore in December, botched the surgery for Mark off in January, completely destroyed Jerry Summers' spine to the point that he can't even walk and can't use his arms or legs. That was a totally catastrophic case. 
in February. And even though all of that happened, the hospital continued to let him do surgery and he operated in March on Kelly Martin. And she's she's the one that and let me, let me tell you, when I watched some of the interviews with her and her family, I could not get through it. It was so hard. Her, they showed videos of her. They showed pictures of her. They showed the interviews with her grown daughters and her husband and her grown daughters were talking about how Dr. Dunch came out and told them that she had died and how unbelievable it was and how devastating it was and how they had to watch their father rocking back and forth in pain and he was so upset and just so hurt and he didn't know what to do. They were absolutely devastated and it's just absolutely senseless and I just don't understand it because it's not like this was the first surgery. It's not and it's it's bad enough that it happened to Jerry Summers. It's bad enough. This is the fourth botched surgery and it resulted in this poor woman's death. Right. I mean I can't I cannot imagine it must have been so heartbreaking for this family. And and the fact that the hospital they I mean, they they didn't want to fire him. And yeah, oh, what is gosh, up with, that? Okay, they don't want to fire him, so they allow him to leave. And then, right. okay, but then they still don't report him to the medical board. There's a a thing called a data bank for doctors, and it's like a national registry for doctors who have had issues. Okay, and so. Right. I guess anyone can report a doctor to this databank, but you not anyone can see it, okay? Hospitals right. can see it, but not anyone can just go look up and see, oh, is this doctor? Because they don't want people just using that to tarnish, you know, doctors. It's, it is their livelihood, sure. of course, you know. Right. They, didn't, they did not report him to the databank. They just let him go because it's like, well, we don't want you operating on any more of our patients. So right. I'm going to... But we're okay with you operating on other people's patients. Well, apparently. <laughs> right. So they basically, not only did they politely ask him to leave, I guess, they also sent him off with a letter that said, quote, all investigations with respect to any areas of concern regarding Christopher Dunch, MD, have now been closed. As of this date, there have been no summary or administrative restrictions or suspension of Dr. Dunch's medical staff membership or clinical privileges during the time he has practiced at Baylor Regional Medical Center at Plano. Now, do you think he's going to be able to get privileges at another hospital with that letter? Of course. I Yeah, it's just disgusting. Neurosurgeons bring in so much money for hospitals. It's not going to be hard for him to go to a hospital and say, hey, would you like a neurosurgeon working for you, bringing in hundreds of thousands of dollars? More than that. Right. So he does go and get another, they get privileges at another hospital. He goes to Dallas Medical Center. Right. Which, by the way, is not very far away. It's about a 45 minute drive up the road from Baylor, Plano. Well, he um, he meets this, this woman called Shirley Mock. She comes to him. I think she gets his name from maybe like a pain clinic or something because she's having a lot of pain. And Shirley is kind of this, how do I say this? I, 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 I picture her because I, I listened to the interview and I picture her, this Texas woman who she's a kind of no nonsense. She's not going to be someone to whine and complain about being in pain. If she says she's hurting, she's hurting. I mean, she just, she's an administrator at a school. She's never really had very many medical problems. I don't know, just listening to this woman, I'm just like, she's just impressive is is all I can say. And it's kind of sad. But at first, he did surgery on her and she sang his praises and told everyone how wonderful he was. And I, they even, he even recorded her saying this and used her 
statement in a infomercial that he recorded about himself. Oh, my goodness. It's so horrible. It shows him all in the surgical garb. And, you know, it just talks about what a wonderful surgeon he is. And the thing is, a lot of these people who he worked on said that they looked him up on the internet. I mean, this is 2011, 2012. Right. You can find, you would think, whether or not there is a, a bad doctor out there and whether or not you should trust him to cut you open and, and fix your spine. And she was one of the people singing his praises because he did surgery on her and it actually worked. She was getting better. So we will we will hear from her some more a little later on. (laughs) Yes, yes, we will. But the very next day, (laughs) yeah, Shirley mock surgery went well, which is a miracle. Yeah, but Floella Brown surgery did not. This is a 64 year old lady. She again was undergoing a rather routine surgery, and she began bleeding profusely during the surgery. And then after the surgery, she seemed fine. So um, she recovered okay. And then, but the next day after surgery, she actually started seizing. And the staff was just very concerned and they attempted to get in touch with Dr. Dunch. And he said, so they, you know, they contacted him and said, we really need you to come look at this patient. And he said, well, I'm late for another procedure I'm doing this morning. Common sense and protocol would say that, you know, the staff, told them their concerns about Miss Brown and and they expected him to postpone the procedure just to go check on his patient. His on Ms. patient. Brown. Right. Right. And and instead he went ahead with the procedure. Yeah. So a few days later, after she continues to have these major issues, they did some tests and discovered that Dr. Dench had punctured and blocked a major artery in Miss Brown's neck with a screw. Because he put the screw in the wrong place. So she never actually fully woke up after that first seizure. After her initial recovery, she never um, woke up and regained function. And she died. And um, as a result, well, they determined that her cause of death was um, a massive air embolism with infarction to the brain. Yes. That was as a direct result of him putting that screw in the wrong place. Right. So while he's doing the surgery for Mary Eford, who is the the patient on the table at this time, when he, you know he got there that morning to perform another surgery, and right. and the staff is going, um, do, have you heard about your patient from yesterday and what's going on? And and he's he's like, oh no, you know, and they they explain it, and he goes, well, we're going to go ahead with the surgery. So he goes ahead, but as he's doing the surgery for Mary Eford, he he's sort of. I guess he can't get it out of his head what's going on with his other patient, which is another reason why he shouldn't have gone ahead with this surgery, because he's going to be distracted right. with what's, you know, thinking about what's going on. And that's exactly what happened. He he even started talking about what he was going to do to fix Floella Brown. And he told an OR nurse that he was going to do a craniotomy on Mary Eford and or excuse me, on Floella Brown. And that was how he, he was going to go in and do a crani- craniotomy and some kind of procedure. Wow. And somehow that was how he was going to fix her. Well, the nurse kind of looked at him and said, you can't do a craniotomy at this facility. And he said, yes, I can. And he and the nurse said, no, you can't. We don't have the equipment here for you to do a craniotomy. We don't do them. And right. basically what he said is, I can come up, I can use whatever tools you have, and I can do it. 
And the nurse just looked at him and said, you're not going to do a craniotomy no. at this facility. And he, th- this doctor must be thinking, uh, you know, because Dutch, you know, he's obviously so arrogant and so full of himself. And he must just be thinking, I can't believe this nurse is telling me that I can't do something. So he goes and gets, he breaks scrub. He's so mad. He leaves the room, tries to go get a couple more people to try to confirm that he can, in fact, do a craniotomy there. And this OR nurse says, I cannot, no one in the room can believe he broke scrub because he left this woman, Mary Eford, exposed, her spine exposed on the operating table and broke scrub and left. For what? Oh, my goodness. This is just something that's not done. Surgeons are want to get in and efficiently repair whatever it is they need to repair and get back out, sew, the, sew them back up because the longer they're open, the higher the risk is that something's going to happen. Right. And so he was, compl- everyone was shocked that he left the room. So while he's gone, they, you know, they're doing x-rays the whole time through the surgery just to right. see where things are placed and that sort of thing. And they notice that the OR team, the surgical team notices that the hardware that he had put into Mary Eford's back was not in the right place. I mean, this is ridiculous. Oh, my goodness. He comes back in, and he starts arguing with them that it is in the right place. And it's just, it's just crazy. And, you know, no one can believe it. They're going, this is an x-ray. This is not some, you know, computer-generated um, image. This is literally right. a picture of her spine and that hardware, you cannot argue it is in the wrong place. Right. Finally, he he relents and he goes in to try to fix it. And he kept working on her. But when she woke up from the surgery, she could not move her body from the waist down. And she was, oh my goodness. she could, but she could feel pain. And she was in oh. excruciating pain. She, oh, my she, A neurosurgeon by the name of Dr. Robert Henderson. And this is, he's going to be a major player in the rest of the story. He really is a hero to me. And Dr. Kirby is too, because Dr. Kirby uh, that we heard of, you know, that was in one of the surgeries right. earlier. Dr. Kirby and Dr. Henderson really kind of, I feel like, go to bat for the for the women, men and women of Texas. <laughs> yes. Because... Nobody else was, but he operated on Mary Eford to try to repair the damage done by Dr. Dunch. And when he went in, he just found an absolute mess. And when he finished the surgery, he he wasn't able to save her the use of her legs. She was a paraplegic. It was just too too damaged. He damaged the nerves. It's it's just it was just unbelievable, and it was so bad that he thought surely he had to be an imposter. Like somebody who really wasn't a surgeon, but was pretending to be because he just thought, no, there's no way he's trained and did what he did. Either that or he knows exactly what to do. And he's deliberately doing the opposite because there's just no way this is a trained surgeon. He could not believe that. So he starts investigating Dr. Dunch because, you know, he's there's some major red flags going off for Dr. Henderson now. Right. And Dr. Henderson is this, when I, and, and, and I love watching the videos, you know, I always go and look at as many things I can find online and watch interviews and, and that sort of thing. And I love this man. He's just, a, <laughs> he's just like an old Texas doctor. I just, I feel like he, you know, no nonsense. He's going to just, um, I don't know. I feel like he does everything by the book. You know, he's kind of like str- just the facts kind of person. And he yeah. does not strike me as the type of person who's going to try to stir up drama or who's going to want right. to get in the middle of something. But he so clearly 
this was something he would not have just, you know, made a big issue out of this if it wasn't a big issue. Right. So he does start investigating. Right. And, and, and he does actually, well, obviously find <laughs> a lot of the botched surgeries that Dr. Dunch did. And he even called Baylor and recorded a conversation that he had with the president of the hospital there, yeah. Mr. Jerry Garrison. And he told Garrison about all the operations that Dr. Dench did at Dallas Medical and how um, disastrous they were and and everything that had happened. And it just seemed like Garrison didn't really want to talk about those incidents or anything that had happened while Dr. Dench was working at Baylor. But um, Garrison, he insisted during the phone call that they tried their very best to make sure that he didn't do this anywhere else. Which is an absolute lie <laughs> because they they sent him off with a letter yeah. that said everything that he had done had been investigated and the cases were closed, essentially. Yeah. And, and so Dr. Dunch, he did lose his, his privileges at Dallas Medical Center. Um, but still, Dallas Medical didn't report him to the medical board. Crazy. So he started doing surgery at another hospital. Yeah, and this hospital. So Shirley, remember Shirley Mock back at the you know a little a few surgeries, oh, yes. a few botched surgeries ago. His infomercial lady. The infomercial lady. <laughs> so yes. she is going back for a like follow up visit for him to him, and he sends her for an MRI to just check and see how things are doing. And he tells her, "Oh, it looks like you've had another fall." I said, and I love the, the interview. She's so funny. She said, <laughs> I said, no, I have not had another fall. <laughs> she was just so, um, I just love her. And she said, I know I have not fallen, but he convinced her that she needed another surgery. He said, oh, you've got something. Something has happened. Oh, my goodness. And so he did convince her to have another surgery. She went in. Now, she didn't have as devastating of, of effects as some of the other surgeries, you know, thank goodness. But... She when she woke up, she was she said she was in agony and she oh. felt like she was dying. She said it was very different from the, the previous surgery. It was. And the thing is, this university hospital and I'm repeating what they said. OK, I don't know anything about <laughs> university hospital. I don't want to offend anyone. That, but what they said, what Shirley Mock and her husband said was that when they walked into the hospital, it just kind of felt like um, this is definitely a step down, you know, from the previous facilities. And Dr. Dunge. Mm had tried to convince them that that he was moving hospitals because it, they had more state-of-the-art equipment. So, oh, wow. Yeah. And they're walking in going, um, I don't think so. He doesn't, I mean, it's like he doesn't even have any idea. I mean, he just is not even acknowledging any of the devastation that he's causing. I mean, he just seems to have no, I just, he doesn't have a, a cell in his body that cares about another human being is how it no, right, right. So then December, later that year, Jacqueline Troy is a patient who had undergone neck surgery by Dr. Dunch there at University Hospital. And during that surgery, he punctured her trachea and oh put a plate goodness. in the wrong place as it was pushing on her esophagus. Food's going into her lungs. Of course, she's got a hole oh in her trachea. Goodness. And when she had, when she was finally did, which she almost died because she got an infection. You can't let food go into your lungs. You will get, no. you know, an infection. That's instant pneumonia. Yeah. And so when she finally did recover, like I said, they thought she was going to die, but she did recover. It was a long, drug out, painful, scary recovery. Her, her husband was really scared through the whole thing. 
But when she finally recovered, she had lost one of a, one of her vocal cords. He had completely demolished one of her vocal cords. So now she kind of talks in this sort of like whisper voice. You can hear her, but it's very faint. And it's just sort of like wow. just above a whisper. And that's as loud as she can get because she only has the one vocal cord. Wow. Well, and of course, we continue. Dr. Dunch did another surgery yet again. And this one was in June 2013. Um Mr. Jeff Glidewell, he was doing, Dr. Dunch was doing surgery uh, on his neck. And during the surgery, Dr. Dunch thinks that he has found a tumor on his spine or on his neck and he attempts to cut it out. Okay. And what he thought was a tumor was actually muscle. Oh my goodness. I can't even, I don't understand. I I think I remember reading a story of of a doctor doing this. Uh, of a different doctor doing this. D- have you heard this story? I it sounds familiar, honestly. It really does. Like but I don't, they I thought can't. something was a tumor and they took it out. Oh, was it a kidney? Oh dear lord! Did you hear about that? I don't remember that. No. Okay, I I can't remember now, and I because I, I, it literally just popped in my head. <laughs> I didn't think about it when I was doing the you know like looking up the story. Right. It literally just popped in my head that there was a doctor that did something similar. Like oh, that's a tumor. He took it out, and it was like a, a vital organ. Oh you my know. gosh! Uh, yeah. Oh. So that's kind of what, you know, he, he was like, oh, here's this massive tumor. He goes and cuts it out. And right. It, Let's hack it off. And, <laughs> and it's the, the doctor that there was a doctor that they want, you know, had review these cases to testify in court to kind of explain. He's a, he's a neurosurgeon. And he said that it looked like Christopher Dunch tried to decapitate Mr. Glidewell. I'm not kidding you. Oh, my goodness. Actually, that was Dr. Kirby that said that. Yes. Dr. Kirby, which, okay, to make matters even worse, Dr. Dunch has almost essentially decapitated Mr. Glidewell. But to top it all off, he sewed up his incision with a surgical sponge still in his neck. You hear about these things happening. You know, you hear about people you know, right. getting things sewn up um, and you just wonder how. I, when I did, when I was in my clinicals, uh, I did a little, a day in the OR and, and got to watch several surgeries. And they are absolutely OCD about counting the, every single thing. They count it a million times. I, I mean, I don't know how this happened. There's no way right. they're going to leave anything in there. But th- I hear no. of this, you know, sort of thing happening from time to time. And they have to go in and, you know, take it out. Or they they go and get like right. a CT done or something. And they're like, what's that? What is <laughs> like that? A, a right. comb-shaped object. Oh, gosh. <laughs> wonder, wonder what that is, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, and thankfully for Jeff Glidewell, an, another doctor went in to... Well, actually, multiple doctors had to be called because they had to not only remove the said sponge, but which caused an infection, um, but they also had to repair his esophagus and stabilize his spine. And thankfully, they were able to do that because if they had not been able to repair it, he would have been a quadriplegic. So it was a, a very, very close call. And I am with you, Tina, on applauding Dr. Kirby. He seems, he seems like a wonderful doctor and definitely a patient advocate. But during his court testimony, he's, he's quoted as saying, this has not happened in the United States of America, where you can do such a procedure and have such complications. Leave sponge, knock a hole in someone's esophagus, take out the recurrent laryngeal nerve, take out the vertebral artery, 
and just leave the patient there without any attempt to transfer. He, he's he's definitely got a lot of personality and character. He He's very um, vibrant, outspoken. <laughs> I really, again, I like him a lot. He's somebody you would want in, in your on your side, you know, if you've got to argue a point, because right. he's obvi- obviously extremely intelligent. I guess I shouldn't say obviously, because this guy, other guy's a neurosurgeon, too. So, you know, right. I guess we can't go around saying, oh, well, it's not brain surgery, because hello. But right. So Glidewell surgery that where he took out the false tumor was his last one. He was not able. Thank goodness. I mean, it's about time. <sighs> really? I mean, we started in 2011, and here we are in 2013. Yeah, and then so and and there's a lot. There are tons and tons of stories about this on online. Like you can find Inside Edition does a story, True Crime Daily does a, a whole story, lots of interviews about all of the from all the people. Well, not all of them, but a lot of the the family or the victims and these doctors. There are articles written just so much information, obviously the podcast. And so this investigative journalist went digging around for some information to sort of see what kind of neurosurgical training did he actually have at the University of Tennessee? How (laughs) I mean, yes, come on, what's going on? Or lack thereof. (laughs) I mean, it really is supposed to be a top. I mean, it is. It is a top tiered school. I don't I'm not sure what happened here. But so Christina, (laughs) she asked I'm just this kills me. She right. asked Dr. Robert Henderson. He is the doctor who's kind of been he you know, he's the one that uh, attempted to fix Miss Efert's spinal surgery that he had botched and who proceeded to then call Baylor and try to see what's going on. We've got to figure out a way to get to keep him from having from doing any more surgeries. Right. So Dr. Henderson, she asked Dr. Henderson, how many surgeries did would you say about how many surgeries did you perform while you were in your doing your medical residency? And Dr. Henderson said probably I don't know 2500. She said, "What if I told you that Dr. Dunch had performed under 100 surgeries as a medical what? resident?" How did that even happen? He was so speechless. He couldn't even talk and he he said, he finally he goes, "I would say that's not possible." I mean, he knows all of these things that Dr. Dunch did, and he still, in his mind, is thinking, that is impossible. Right. He should never have been allowed to get out of that surgical program. No. And the only thing I can think, which I don't know how he w- was able to graduate from the program and get his, sort of, I don't know, whatever you call it. License, I guess. I don't know. Specifically in, in uh, neurosurgery. I don't know. Sure. But... However, he uh, was allowed to get out of that surgical program is just an absolute anomaly. And it's a mystery. And nobody's talking about it at the University of Tennessee in Memphis. But at the time that this was going on, there was this whole other issue that was going on. Dr. Dunch had a PhD in research. And he was he met these a couple of researchers. And they these other researchers say they're the ones that invented this or that that discovered it or whatever, but they, they formed a company called Discgenics. And the company, what it was doing is produce, I don't know if it was attempting or actually doing this, but they wanted to produce stem cells that you could inject into the spine and heal the spinal cord. Okay, which would be wonderful. That That, would be a miracle. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, he is doing this. He's creating this company, he's co, you know, a co partner with this company with these other two doctors. And 
while he's in the neurosurgery program. And so it's kind of like, well, was he planning to just do the research thing and, you know, own this company? Because he got kind of booted out of that company. They fired him because of some of his behavior. He was he was investigated for doing cocaine and LSD. Uh, wow. One of his girlfriends, or a girl that I guess was at a party with him one night, said that he stayed up all night doing cocaine and LSD. And then the next morning after the sun came up, he never went to sleep, put on his lab coat and went into St. Jude's Children's uh, <gasps> Hospital to no. do rounds. No. Yeah. And then it didn't bat an eye. Just not like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe I've done this. It just like, that's just what you do. They found cocaine in his desk drawer. They found vodka, things like that. And so they let him go from that program. And I guess he's just thinking, well, I guess I have to do this neurosurgery thing. But how, okay, this is what boggles my mind. How were the, were these two programs not in communication? I mean, wouldn't you want to know if your participant who had been doing research was suddenly kicked out of that program and for what? Yeah. And why is he in a surgery program of all things. I mean, when you need to be, well, you always need to be alert and and well rested for anything. I mean, it just, I, I just find it so hard to believe that there were not any other signs to people around him yeah. before he even got to the point of being allowed to do surgery on his own. I know. And so Dr. Henderson and Dr. Kirby, you know, they're the, they're the two, there are a lot of, of medical practitioners around that were working with him that were concerned and that saw the right. what was going on. Dr. Henderson and Dr. Kirby were were pretty much relentless in their pursuit to try try to get him somehow to not be able to do surgeries anymore on people. And they both contacted the medical board. Dr. Henderson told them that quote, not only should he not be operating, but he should not be evaluating or interfacing with patients, period, until he was fully evaluated from both a mental and capability standpoint. Hmm. And then he said that they told him, okay, thank you very much. And that was the end of that call. Wow. And that was his report to the medical board. And then Dr. Kirby called the medical board and he said, he said, I told him we've had egregious results at Baylor Plano. He was not reported to the data bank. We've had egregious results at Dallas Medical Center and he's, he's got to be stopped. He said they didn't feel that they had enough action to, or, or enough information or enough um, evidence to act on. And he oh. said, I guess two dead patients, a quadriplegic and a paraplegic is not enough. Wow. Wow. So the Texas Medical Board actually did receive a complaint about Dunch in late 2011. That was right when he started. And they did right. get a complaint. And then over the 18 months that he was performing these atrocities, multiple medical professionals reported his, him to the medical board. But he didn't wow. have his license suspended until June of 2013. And then it was just suspended. It wasn't actually revoked until later the same year. And then to top it all off, <laughs> as if as if things could get any worse, which they always can, apparently, Dr. Dunch's fellowship supervisor, his fellowship supervisor when he was in neurosurgery, whose name is Dr. Foley. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just have to giggle. <laughs> I just, gosh, you know what an unfortunate name for a doctor. <laughs> That's right. Anyways, Dr. Foley told Dr. Henderson, so Dr. Henderson had, had contacted um, Dr. Foley about Dr. Dunch. And Dr. Foley told Dr. Henderson that he had received a request for reference for, for Dr. Dunch because Dr. Dunch was 
yet again seeking surgical privileges at another hospital. And this is what really blows my mind. Dr. Foley told Henderson that he really couldn't comment on the cases at the Texas hospitals because he didn't personally witness them. Yeah. So even what? though there's there's there are public records, the medical examiner's office, for example, has a case open about Dr. Dunch. Dr. Foley is saying, well, I can't really say that he's a bad doctor because I didn't personally witness yeah, well, these surgeries. Dr. Foley is in Memphis. Okay, he's in the state of Tennessee. Right. And yeah, apparently in this in the state of Tennessee, there was a case where a one doctor basically reported another doctor for being I don't know if dangerous maybe was the word, but but it was reported ne- that negligent or something. Yeah, one doctor basically kind of reported the other doctor for 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 being dangerous, okay. unsafe, that sort of thing. The doctor who was accused of being dangerous sued the other doctor and won. And so wow. now there's not you're not going to find a doctor in the state of Tennessee who's going to want to say anything against another doctor. And Dr. Foley knows about this. All doctors I'm sure in Tennessee know. And so he doesn't want to say anything against him. And he, and he even said, well, you know, in this request, all they're asking is what my experience was when he was here. What did I see? And so I have to tell them that when he was here, he was, he was a good student. He was average at, you know, in clinical. He didn't really have anything negative to say. Even though when he was a student, he was investigated for drug use. Right. But he didn't want to put anything that could possibly be negative on there. Wow. And that that is just unbelievable. It is really unbelievable and sad, really. It is it is really sad that doctors, I guess, in Tennessee feel that pressure yeah. to, I don't know, to I, not really support one another, but not report one another, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah. You're if you're afraid you're going to be sued for everything you have, that's that is scary. Right. Because who knows what, you know, what would happen. You really should, you, you really would have to have excellent proof before you could go talking about something or saying something like that, especially putting it on a reference, writing it on, you know, a formal right. document like that. Well, but here's the thing. Why? Okay. I, I guess I, maybe I'm just not fully understanding. Cause again, I'm not a doctor. I don't really know how these things work, but, but if I became aware of the disastrous consequences of my students' actions. Maybe I don't want to say anything negative about them, but I don't. I wouldn't give them a reference. Yeah, I, I would. I don't know how you, in good conscience, could say right. I, you know, I, I would recommend this person. And the thing is, Dr. Kirby was Dr. Kirby and Dr. Henderson. They wanted something to be done. They wanted his license to be taken away. They did not want him performing surgery on one more person. And right. yet they called the medical board. They Dr. Henderson had this conversation with Dr. Foley. They were doing everything. They called Baylor. They were doing everything they felt like they could. They would talk to anybody that would talk to them about it. And they really wanted something done. Nobody seemed to want to do anything, even after all of this. So right. Kirby, Dr. Kirby said he, he went to the uh, prosecutor. He didn't know what else to do. So he sought criminal help, help from the criminal courts. And wow. that's when they got involved and started looking at the situation. I think that even took some time. But they, they finally, um, you know, he in the 18 months he was active as a surgeon, 
He performed surgery on 38 patients. And of those 38 patients, 32 were injured. 20 of those were seriously injured. And of course, two died. Wow. That is it's, it's unbelievable. Well, it's just senseless. I don't even know how to process right. all of that. There's no way. My husband and I were talking about this because I was telling him about the story today. And he said, that's so disturbing because you expect doctors to be held to that, you know, that high standard. You, right. you put your faith in them. You literally put your life in their hands and you really don't even think too much of it. I mean, you know, they're human and they can make mistakes. Everybody's aware of that. And so you right. worry that, you know, somebody might, you worry that one of them could make a mistake. Right. But this is not only a doctor who made a mistake, but he clearly was just blatantly reckless, didn't care anything about anyone. And not only that, the system completely failed all of these right. people, subsequent cases, because nobody was going to do anything. No. And that, uh, and that is, I mean, okay, so he was a surgeon, active, an active surgeon for 18 months. He wasn't even, not, um, nothing was done for, what is it, almost three years? Is that right? And then when the board finally got involved, his medical license was revoked. But like you said, Dr. Kirby and Dr. Henderson wanted to make sure, you know, this is not going to happen again. So took him to, to court and he was arrested in July 2015 in Colorado a year and a half. So in July 2015, and that was a year and a half after his medical license was revoked. Yeah, and I think, you know, they waited a while before they revoked his license. And the, the Dr. Kirby and Dr. Henderson were scared to death that he was going to go to another state and try to get another medical license in another state. And they were afraid that right. he, was, he would be able to do that and continue to, because he pretty much had depleted all of the hospitals in the, that area. So what happened is they were trying to figure out, you know, the prosecutors couldn't just charge him with anything. He was doing his job when this happened. Right. It's not like he wasn't, it's not like he wasn't supposed to be cutting on these people. That was his job. So. Well, in theory. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes. The, uh, yeah. the case of Jacqueline Troy, who uh, her vocal cords, uh, one of her vocal cords was damaged. She, the, the, one of those neurosurgeons that was kind of investigating the case, he said that that surgery didn't even have to take place. So really no. and truly, but the, the prosecutors were trying to figure out um, what to charge him with specifically because they're, it's kind of like, you know, what are you going to charge him with? He's doing his job. It's going to be, it's you know going to be kind of hard to prove his intent, but what they right. looked at was, the case that happened in December, Lee Passmore, the case that happened in January, the it was one of the spinal surgeries. And then February was his, his good friend, Jerry Summers, with the, right. that became a quadriplegic. And then, of course, uh, Kelly Martin, who, who died. And then after that happened, he proceeded to work on Miss Eford. And that right. is actually where they got the, the main charge for him because... In the state of Texas, they don't want you messing with children, the elderly or disabled people, because right. you can get up to like 99 years. So that's what they went. That's what they pretty much tried to get, you know, get him on. And they charged him with five counts of aggravated assault, causing serious bodily injury and one count of injury to a child, elderly or disabled person. Wow. And the jury found him guilty in 2017. He was sentenced to life in prison. And he'll be eligible for parole in 2045 when he's 74. Wow. Unbelievable. 
And that's the story of Dr. Death. That story originally was, there was an article done about him by, I forget the name of the public, there's a publication there in, in Dallas, and they're the ones that originally called him Dr. Death, and is D Magazine. D Magazine. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they originally called him Dr. Death, and it just, the nickname stuck. And then, so all these other articles came out and all the, the whole story, you know, they c- continued to be reported on over the years by the, the local media, national media. And then Wondery uh, gets a hold of this um, story from one of, you know, one of the journalists from, from Dallas and, you know, they produce it and they do. It's a really good podcast and you guys should go listen to it. I would, I mean, I would recommend you. I like podcasts like that. Not every, it's not everybody's cup of tea, but I like them. So <laughs> it is fascinating. And it's, it, it's interesting to hear the, the interviews with the different people, the doctors, some of the victims, some of the family members. So that's pretty much it for Dr. Dunch. Wow. And that is our bad doctor story. And it's bad enough that we don't even have to, it's, we have a good a good doctor story. We have to have a you know a light note. I thought about <laughs> yes. I thought about doing like well, we have a couple of really good doctors here. We have a couple of doctor heroes. I feel like Doctor Kirby and Doctor Henderson are our heroes and excellent doctors for doing what yes. they did. They're very brave um, to speak up uh, when no one else would. And I honestly don't know that he. Who knows if anything would have happened if they hadn't been so relentless about right. getting something done about this because it didn't seem like any of the hospitals were going to do anything. Right. So then I thought, well, we could do a little short story, just an uplifting, you know, kind of story. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there's no. a story uh, that I found online um, about a doctor who in Canada, you know, in Canada, they love their ice hockey. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We're not much into um, ice hockey where I'm from because there's just not a lot of ice. You know, you kind of need it. <laughs> <laughs> there's not a whole lot of ice so that explains why Canada loves it so much <laughs> exactly they have lots of ice up there so they love their ice hockey and they in the in a, the states there's a lot of, you know you have like pickup games of basketball that got you know guys and girls will get right. together and do that they do that apparently a lot with ice hockey and so this is kind of like an adult ice hockey team um, and there's a man who went into cardiac arrest while playing hockey and another one of his teammates is a ER doctor, which is awesome. Yeah, and if you if you watch the video, which we did, it is incredible because yeah. he just they're just playing a game of hockey. I mean, you know, doing what they always do, and this player just collapses on the ice. And honestly, if no, I mean, if if anyone had kind of tapped him or ran into him, it it would have looked just like any sort of other accident on ice. But, but thankfully, no one else, I should say, thankfully, no one else was around him. So everyone realized right away something is very wrong. And they all just spring into action. It really, it is amazing. And this doctor, Dr. Barnett, Dr. Craig Barnett, he rushes up to him and begins CPR. Um, and they're able to, I mean, he's he's doing CPR. He asked someone to find the AED. And, and they have to perform CPR for, I think they said, was it a full five minutes before any other help arrived? Yeah. They said he didn't have a pulse for five minutes. Right. That's a long time. Which is a long time. And it's a long time to do CPR. Yeah. I feel winded (laughs) 
doing practice rounds of CPR, you know, for our two minute marker. (laughs) And anyways, this doctor, Dr. Burnett just jumped into action and he, and he saved that man's life. Yep. He sure did. And there, you know, there happened to be an AED there. And so he did the whole, you know, you call 911, you grab the AED. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, Is the scene safe? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, (laughs) begin CPR. (laughs) Sorry. Oh, gosh. You know, we're laughing about this, but. I, I don't know. I mean, training is everything. Yes. It really is. It is. And it was nice at the end. He gave him a, the the person who had the, the who went into cardiac arrest and who was, his life was saved, gave uh, the doctor a jersey, a Wayne Gretzky jersey signed by <laughs> Wayne Gretzky. That is awesome. Yeah. So I thought that was cool. <laughs> so I guess that's our story. My goodness gracious. This was exhausting. Oh, I- I know. Hopefully it was uplifting enough <laughs> after Dr. Death. Yeah. Goodness, Tina, I, I tell you, the more we do these podcasts, the more I just second guess everything. <laughs> it's scary. It's a scary world we live in. Yes. Well, you guys have a good week. Don't forget to go to goodnursebadnurse.com and check us, check out our website and give us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. And Christine and I also want you guys to remember that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, a bad boy, be a good nurse. Be a good nurse. <laughs> <laughs>